Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. a very special edition of the Mad Sounds podcast. My name is Will Sparks and I'm joined as ever by Matt Maynard. How are you, Matt? Very well, mate. I'm very excited by this podcast. Indeed. We're not uh, not too far after recording our Up the Bracket special with um, with a band member himself, Gary Powell, drummer from the Libertines. And um, he gave us may, way more than we were ever expecting and uh, we're so grateful. But just to touch on a few things before and, and just come from our point of view so the, i mean the bands we've interviewed so far we're no doubt fans but i'd say in terms of the libertines we're we're massive fans well, yeah. we wanted to get this podcast on you know the, the ball rolling on this podcast i've seen them not this competition <laughs> here them, we go uh, here he goes <laughs> seen them full, 14 times this is all just in all. you proving your credentials to any libertines fans that might be listening now that don't normally listen to this podcast well, if, if, if they've seen the tweet go up and now here they are, they're thinking, <laughs> who are these chances doing a podcast about the Libertines? No, I mean, you know if, what? if a Libertines fan is, if, if, if the Libertines fans are coming to listen, then I've got to establish my credentials because there's going to be I people agree. listening who have seen them more than 14 times <laughs> and more importantly, <laughs> seen them when up the bracket came out, which is what I'm incredibly jealous of. Well, yeah, that's true. We are a bit of the, we're of the younger fans, aren't we? I mean, I'm 28 and you're 24, Are we right? maybe second, third generation libertines? I, I guess, I don't know how you could put a label on that, but um, I'm certainly of an age where I was unable to see them the first time around at the height of their cultural uh, f- impact and their cultural yeah. phenomenon. But it's so, so nice to see them. We just looked up a set list the first time we went to see them together, which was um, in September 2016 when they played Brixton Academy. Um, the bulk of the set list, I mean, nearly nearly half of it is up the, from up the bracket. Um, yeah, it just shows the importance of that album, doesn't it? And that's why we picked it, because we thought that that first album was was really what makes the Libertines who they are and is their most influential album, isn't it? Absolutely. And we couldn't have hoped for a, for a better guest to get on. I mean, I think when we were discussing the planning of this podcast, could we maybe go for someone who worked on the production of it or someone who managed... Instead, we managed to get. Um, we managed to get one of the very men himself who was involved. We managed involved to get and... one of them. We managed to get Gary himself. Um, Played such before... a major role as well. Sorry, yeah, I'm just saying that. Um, to, and just to uh, add to my own credentials, first time I saw them was their comeback in 2010, which was so special at Reading Festival. Um, brilliant gig. they've literally played a couple of warm-up gigs before that but yeah it was unbelievable yeah. and that was the ultimate tease as well because they came back and played that gig and I thought everyone saw a kind of envisaged a reunion around the corner um, yeah. and it never really happened and then so, a few years down the line it came, it came round again and um, just before we jump into the chat with Gary uh, a few bits of housekeeping really uh, there are parts of the podcast where there's a bit of audio that needed tidying up um, we do apologise for that but no, 
nothing major. Yeah, we blame Zoom um, and all, <laughs> all, the, all the gremlins we're, at Zoom. Um, also, it uh, goes without saying, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at the Mad Sounds Pod. Get, get, get following us on there. Uh, and if you're listening right now, if you click follow, if you're on Spotify, and if you're on Apple, click the subscribe button, then you'll get the latest podcast to your phone um, as, soon as, uh, as soon as it's out, really. Uh, we have hit over 100 subscribers and followers across both platforms and um, the weekend just gone so that would be um, Saturday the the 20th we've had 400 people listen this weekend so we're really really grateful um, for you giving us our time and hopefully we've made lockdown a tiny bit easier with something to fill your ears music wise but anyway enough of us rambling on this is someone with actual libertine credentials here's Gary So let's take you back to the start. It was out in October 2002. Let's set the scene. Nelly and Kelly are flying in the charts. And uh, champions, yes, that's right, champions, Arsenal, uh, had just had a long unbeaten run ended by a 16-year-old Wayne Rooney. Uh, but more importantly, Gary, what do you remember specifically when the album was released? What was going on in your life, apart from, you know, releasing the album? Well, um, one thing definitely is, um, even now, I'm still have, I have no idea who you're talking about when you mentioned Nelly and Kelly. Who the hell was that? What was that? <laughs> really? Nelly and Kelly. I ain't even never heard of that before. They were number one. Who are they? Where, remember, where are they now? Do you remember? Like, no clue who Nelly and Kelly are. And I feel really sorry because I'm guessing get, getting to number one is really, really important. But <laughs> it's all important if people know about it. I don't know who Nelly and Kelly are. Who do you remember are they? Destiny's Child? Yeah. Yeah, so that's Kelly Rowland was one of them. Oh, Kelly Rowland and 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 and, and the Nelly, Nelly, Nelly. I don't know what Nelly's. It was just Nelly, wasn't it? Just Nelly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you made you made you made you made it sound like Nelly and Kelly were like um like compadres of Mr. Blobby. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Blobby and Nelly and Kelly. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay, my bad. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And and deservedly so. It was Dilemma that was number one. I think. Do you remember okay, that one? Um, no, I don't remember what, that at all. What I do. No. Is that what dialogue is that the trackless dilemma? See, <laughs> I don't know nothing about nothing. <laughs> Voice of an angel, Matt. Honestly, sorry, Voice... it was really high, was it? Voice of uh, an angel. Yeah. Uh, so I, got well, I got the voice of an angel. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What was what was happening at that point in time? Um, well, if we go, if we if we scroll back a few months, the Libertines as 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 uh, as, a, as as a thing was down to just Pete and Carl. That was it. There was, there was no, John had been, John had left the band to go back to school and uh, Mr. Rascox, he'd quit the band stating that the band would never get anywhere anyway. So he was leaving and um, the member after member just left the band and Pete and Cole were, were, Pete and Cole were left. And between the two of them who formed the band in the first place, they still had the vision to actually continue moving forward, trying to figure out a way of actually getting the music to as many people as possible. So they then, at that point in time, hired a new manager called Bami Pucci, who yeah. was working at East West Records. And East West Records were based by um, Kensington High Street. I, I'm not sure who's there now, but at that point in time, I was working for Eddie Grant, right. doing um, the remix of Electric Avenue. That, that was my thing. Nice. That, were, that was big. That, were, that came about via um, the Miami dance thingamajiggy nonsense i can't remember what that's called either because i don't know nothing and we started working on that in england and blah 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 the rest of it so for me as far as i was concerned i was already popping i was already making moves yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> but then i met pete and carl at filthy mcnasty's on holloway, oh, on holloway road and um, no 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 that's the filthy mcnasty's on the holloway road now 
If we go back 20 years, Filthy McNasty's was on Amway Street after Pennsylvania Road. Ah, That's okay. where it was. That's where it all began. And I think Peter, he worked there on, a, on, a, on the odd occasion and stayed in the spare room there. And, but, but, but between the two of them, they were always there. And there was a scene that was happening around him. And because it was around the corner from where I lived, I lived in Angel. Yeah, I would I would be there on the odd occasion there as well. So Banny, who realized that I was looking for another gig because because albeit I was enjoying my time working with Eddie Grant, wasn't wasn't really like making me a millionaire. <laughs> wasn't so I need I needed more work. I had a little crappy job working in the city, giving financial advice, believe it or not. And and outside of that, I was doing traveling the country working with eddie grant and yeah came in to east west records to get a check and find out what what, what gigs be happening next and i got introduced to banny and banny said i got a couple of guys i'd like to introduce you to and i went down to phil Fitman and asked was there and i was like oh, i see these guys all of the time and we just started chatting nonsense and we stayed we stayed there and the relationship kind of built up from there so luckily for me it wasn't a relationship that was based upon the fact that Banny introduced me to them purely yeah. on the basis of us actually kind of working together. I mean, maybe that's what it was initially, but as soon as we kind of realized that we kind of like drank in the same area and hung out in the same spot and kind of knew some of the same, same people, it, was, it ended up being just kind of like just hanging out and chatting. And then we go back and we just carried on chatting. And then the next thing I knew, we were... Um, rehearsing at the what is what was the Islington Art Factory and the first thing that we played together was horror show ah, okay and horror show as presented to me by Pete and Carl yeah. was really kind of slow kind of like it's a horror show <laughs> horror show come on it was really and I was just like that don't make no sense yeah I'm not I'm really not feeling that at all, which was great because we'd actually established a relationship at that point in time where I, where I felt I could start suggesting things yeah. because by this point in time, we were friends. And they were yeah. like, well, what do you think it should be like? And I just kind of gave them this new tempo and this new kind of like vigor, this new dynamic for, the, for that track in particular. And, and that's where it all kind of began. You know, we, we would then, we, we didn't have one particular spot where we would all rehearse. We'd kind of, we, we started off at Islington, Islington Arts Factory. Then we, then we rehearsed a few times at Ruse and Old Street. We went, um, God blind me, we went, there's a, a, there was a Rasta studio that we went to up the Kingsland Road that we tried to rehearse in, but there was loads of Rastas in there smoking weed all of the time. So that was really, really, really difficult. There were different spots all over Kensal Rise. Yeah, we yeah, rehearsed yeah. there a few times as okay. well. There were different spots. And all of the time, it was literally just about kind of reimagining their music, but also getting the guys into this, in, in, into the frame of mind that in order for you to present the music the best as you possibly can do, you have to learn your music the best you possibly can. Yeah. And at that point in time, they kind of didn't. They just kind of like enjoyed playing. And I yeah. was like, that's not what we do. So you changed the game. And also, I, yeah. did you change the game in terms of, I mean, you say there you brought a sort of like, a slightly new style because people say that before you know you joined the band and like the kind of music that the libs were making between like 97 and the noughties was a bit more like sort of slower basically wasn't it the, yeah, it was. the, the it liberty was. stuff and so do you think i mean there's there's lots of different theories i mean as well like things like the strokes did they have an influence because obviously they came along with their sort of more fast-paced new rock and roll style music that came along uh or you know were you completely instrumental and in saying look 
let's get these drums going. I'm not. I'm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it was completely instrumental with reference to how we ended up sounding at for for at that particular point in time. Yeah. Um. I remember I didn't actually listen to the Strokes up until uh, I took a trip down to. Um, I was going to. Where was it going? So it was. It was one of those day, daytime drinking trips down to uh, Britain and the seaside. What was the place called again? I can't even remember. And I heard the Strokes um, last night on Radio One for the first time, yeah. and I was like, "That's amazing! That's awesome!" But yeah. by then, we'd already recorded. We'd already made kind of like demos of "Death on the yeah. Stairs" and so forth. Sure, and, sure, sure. and and maybe the feel is somewhat the same. But it's because I think that's partially because of the garage band heritage, yeah. As opposed to us actually being a facsimile of the Strokes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we didn't. Re- the Strokes didn't invent garage band <laughs> no, rock and roll. They didn't. It, they didn't. It, it was there beforehand, and yeah. all we actually did between the two entities was kind of like lock onto the feel of garage band rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, I remember there's a few times we'd like the guys would be back in my flat and we'd be watching episodes of the old gray whistle, whistle test and just kind of like i don't know i guess subconsciously stealing as many different ideas as we can do you know you look at something and go oh my god that's amazing but you're actually going yeah i'm going to remember that <laughs> <laughs> would you i mean be as modest as possible here would you say you changed the landscape for british guitar music because it, i feel in music we look back at we always look back at periods and you, we always talk about golden generations and there always seems to be a few bands that come along at the same time when you look towards the early 2000s putting the strokes aside because they were across the pond when up the bracket came out it was such one of a kind do you feel that you changed and influenced other bands that came after to, to just produce this raw explosion of noise on a record and maybe instill maybe a more punky feel but we, in terms of the landscape, which is, and that's such a cliche term, would you say the libs were the ones? Yeah, they paved the way. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to make the. Well, I'm going to try my best not to make this sound as kind of like um, self-orientated <laughs> as I can do. Yeah. But I think w- one of the reasons that we actually ended up sounding as we did was primarily because of working with the likes of Mick Jones. Yeah. Mick Jones, all he did was, um, as a producer, which for me, um, I, don't, I haven't actually worked with a producer of his quality since actually working with him. That's, what, that's why when we, actually, if, when we actually do get going again, I would love to work with him again in the future. I would love to. Yeah. Because what he did was actually bring out the best in us instead of actually trying to transform us into something that he envisaged. This, you know, you know, as far as I'm concerned, any producer works with any band. It's not your music. You have an you have an ideology as to what you may think that music is, but you then cannot turn that band into something that you think they should be. That band has to be whom they are, and they have, and you have to do your best in order to bring that dynamic that whatever out of that band and i think mick jones did that with us he uh, there were very few times when we recorded with mick jones when he actually said i don't like that mick jones said do that again do that again do it again do it again do it again do it again until you get it right do it again until the interpretation that you're trying to achieve yeah is perfect it took a lot it took a lot of work for us to sound as ramshackle as we did i mean because if you if you if you think how we would have sounded on the first few takes as opposed to the last few takes 
That was Mick Jones. Mick He's Jones like, was like, do it again. He had, a, he had a bit of weed in his hand. He's <laughs> dancing around the studio and he just said, boys, do it again. And we, do, we would <laughs> gladly do it again because we'd never, sat, we'd never been in that scenario beforehand where we were being asked to bring the best out of us. Yeah. There was no problem whatsoever. And ever since then, every producer we worked with since then, it has been a case of, I like that, but what happens if we did it like this? Because whomever right. we're working with, they're going, oh, I see that. But it needs to sound a little bit more Joy Division. We're not Joy right. Division. Yeah. And, we're, and, when, we're not whomever you think we are. We are whom we are. You have to bring out the best in each of the emotional aspects of each of the voices that are coming out from that particular track. And that's exactly what Mick Jones did. And do you think that's, that was managing the personalities as well? That was you know, totally managing the personalities because yeah. the personalities are ego-driven. Every person who is creative is ego-driven. Nobody wants to be told that they are bad at anything. So what <laughs> Mick Jones did was say, I like it, but you need to do better at it. Yeah, yeah, Nobody yeah. wants to be told. I, you know, I hate this bullshit of people saying, oh, you know something? You know, I, I, I just love what I'm doing. And I, I, you know, if I really wanted to, I just stay in my bedroom and just do it for myself all day long. Bullshit. You would <laughs> never do that. You wouldn't. The reason you're doing it is because you want to get it out to the masses. You want to get it out to as many people as possible. And if that is the case, you want it to be interpreted the best way you possibly can do. And the only way you can do that is by doing it again and doing it again and doing it again until you get the interpretation succinct and perfect. So you can actually look back at yourself and go, oh, my God, that's great. No, I'm not saying we did that, but I am definitely saying that he was a person that allowed us to tap into a feeling. And that album is the feeling that we tapped into via the idiom of working with Jonesy. Yeah, I think it makes perfect sense because it's this perfect chaos as well, that album. It's like, it's so loose, but at the same time, it's still yeah. tight. Yeah. It, it's, but it has a loose feel. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, that probably comes from just... And then, and then you have the visualization of the four of us together and you see, the mu and you, you see us and you hear the music, but then you see the music and you hear us all in one tidy entity, and it makes total sense. Yeah. It was never going to be smooth. It was never going to be Groove Armada. It was never going to be completely outrighteous Sex Pistols. It was never going to be that. It was always going to sit somewhere else, somewhere in between everything, somewhere in between absolutely nothing. And I think that's what kind of like grabbed, that's what grabbed everybody's attention. It was like, because everybody was like, oh, it sounds so much like this. There's so yeah. much like the strokes. But if you listen to it, we're nothing like the strokes. No, no, no. There's so we're nothing like components. the strokes. There are, we were like yeah. the strokes. <laughs> but we weren't. <laughs> Just as a side to that feeling that the music created. Um, I mean, you were a cultural phenomenon too. I mean, whether the phenomenon is the right word, you think. But the, the, as in the fashion. Do, 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 do. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Sorry. Great. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> um, it's, uh, how, I, I asked it before in the podcast, sorry if I'm like raking up old grace, but you, how aware were you at the time? Because you had such a distinct look. And I do want to ask how many of those red jackets you own um, as, as well. Uh, but how aware were you at the time? Did you feel that that's what we were? Or do you think, no, no, we, we can tap into something here with the jackets and the, and, the, and the brogues and stuff like that. It was such an iconic look. I don't think it's been a look that's been recreated since. You know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I have to give credit where credit due. Yeah. Credit is actually due. Um, all of the music for that, that album came directly from Pete and Carl. It may have been um, jiggled around with by me, new tempos added. 
uh, separate little and separate little twiggy ideas added to things to kind of like give it a little bit of a poke and a little bit of a dynamic rush here and there. But generally speaking, that's all, that's all Pete and Carl. So we can't get away from the fact that you know, without the foundations being laid by the two of them, then yeah. we wouldn't be able to do anything anyway. Of course. Now, re- now regarding the overall aesthetic, regarding the sartorial aspect of things, um, again, I'd say that's kind of definitely Pete and Carl again. Definitely. I had no idea at the time. My, my mind was firmly fixed on, does it sound good? Yeah. How do we make it sound good? And then how do we become, as, how do we become tighter than anybody else? That's all I cared about. I didn't care about anything else. I wanted to be in the best sounding band ever. And for a period of time, we were. Yeah. I remember sitting at the, NMT, at the Enemy Awards and then when they went for the best live awards thing and it was between us and Radiohead and God knows whoever else and we won. Wow, yeah. And I looked over and I saw Tom York looking at me oh. and I looked at him <laughs> and I was just like, no idea. And in my mind, I was like, of course I know. Of course we are. Yeah. Oh, we're better. Oh, I knew for a fact we were better. Do you think he was pissed off? Oh yeah, definitely pissed off. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. What credentials? Definitely, what definitely. Credentials? There's a lot of create. There's a lot of craft and creativity that goes into every single Radiohead record. Oh yeah, they're fucking obviously, amazing. So obviously, the live performances have to kind of be as succinct as as possible. Whereas with us, it seems that what we're doing is strapping in and taking everybody along for the ride. When in actuality, what we're actually doing is actually delivering a dynamic that hadn't been delivered like that for a while. Yeah. It hadn't, it hadn't been. There hadn't been a band of that nature. There hadn't been two front men like Pete and Carl who were so laissez-faire yeah. about absolutely everything around them. But Antal- also kind of in the moment at the same time. Yeah. With reference to where they were on the stage and reference to how that fitted in with everything that, that everything that we did, that play ahead, that play behind, blah, blah. They never did, and they, I don't know how many gigs you've seen, if you've seen any, but they never yeah, did yeah. anything to throw John and I off the scent of what we were doing. Never. No. Yeah, that yeah, takes yeah. a lot of work. If you're, if you're crap, then you're crap, and you'll do something, and somebody will go, what the, what the fuck was that? What happened then? It never really happened. It was just, it was organized chaos, basically. Yeah, it was yeah. organized chaos. But it, was it actually that chaotic? No. No. I don't know many people that are actually really into chaos, per se. <laughs> yeah. Not really. Yeah, they yeah. Want, no, uh, they, want a, they want a formalized version of it, which, are, which I'm guessing that's what you're, yeah. you're pertaining towards. But, yeah. Yeah. But um, it's not, we, you know, we gave a variation on the theme of that. Yeah. And it takes a lot of work to do it. One question I wanted to ask, my favourite live song, or my favourite song on probably Ever Libertine song is Death on the Stairs. Now, on the first album, you have Death on the Stairs. It's quite quiet and subdued, and the vocals seem turned down. And when you release the next version of Death on the Stairs, two albums later, it was on the compilation album, was it? Or was it? I think on the compilation album. It sounded like an up-the-bracket track. Which one did you record first, and did you ever look back at the track and think, we need to re-record that, or was it just a choice of which version you wanted to put on the tracks? You know, off the album, there's a few tracks that that I would have loved to have re-recorded. Definitely Stairs, definitely being one of them, because I don't actually think that I actually, when I recorded it the first time, I'm not sure whether I actually captured 
the dynamic of the song in its entirety. I was all groove orientated. I just, I just found this groove. I remember when we first started playing it in, in Rue's studios in Old Street. Um, I just had this groove. And then, then Pete said, oh, you know, when, do, when we get to, um, oh, please kill me. He just said, can you do a Tom thing there? And I just kind of like thought, oh, that's a really good idea. I can actually just reiterate what they're saying, um, what they're singing on the toms as, and, and use, that, use the toms as a voice. And I was like, that, that I was really happy with. But the groove throughout the verses, and um, specifically the dynamic that I played throughout the verses, the groove that I played for that, wasn't really happy with it. But again, Jonesy said, you nailed it. And because Jonesy said, you nailed it, everyone else said, you nailed it. So I kind of had to go with it. I so I, and I never was really okay with it. Never was. I wasn't happy with the tempo. Um, I thought it needed to be a lot slower so we could actually really kind of like grasp um, the vocal intent, and not so not just so much that you could hear the words, but also you could actually gain garner the meaning of the words as they actually chugged along with the music. And yeah. I don't think it best represented itself. I never did at the time. And now that we're playing it live now, we are playing it a lot slower. And the groove is, it, it does actually feel a lot more kind of, and a lot, a lot more assured. It feels a lot more, a lot more solid within its intent regarding mm -hmm. how we actually put that across to the general public. Yeah, where, yeah. where does it rank in how difficult that song is to play live? I mean, you said you slow it down a bit and I've, I, I saw you did one of the, um, Tim Burgess's fantastic Twitter listening parties the other night talking, I think maybe Pete and Carl saying it was in a horror show or vertigo, so difficult to play because they, they just can't keep, almost struggle to keep up with the tempo. What, what do you find is the most difficult song to play live as a drummer? The most difficult song to play live possibly for me would be horror show. Yeah, it's just yeah. so, it's just so explosive, isn't it? I can't yeah. keep up with it as a punter. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not surprised you can't. It's, yeah, it's just raucous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When we when when we do sound checks, I can tell I can tell if the boys are having fun with me or if I've annoyed with if I, or if they're annoyed with me because someone will just say, "What should we play?" and then they'll just look at me and they'll just go, "Let's play a horror show." <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> no. <laughs> is that your is that your number one contender for opener? Because when I've been seeing you, it's been sometimes it's the Delaney, sometimes it's horror show. No, that's Pete. Pete loves Pete loved horror show as an opener. As an opener. Yeah. But then he kind of fell out of love with it for a while because because of some of the lyrical content. But I think I think that song still holds a place in his heart, and and for me, it definitely holds a place in my heart as well. So I always want I always want to play it. Um, but I always want to play a little bit later on in the set so I can probably warm up into it and then attack it with, I believe, the dynamic and the ferocity that it actually deserves. If it's the first thing that I play, I'm going to ease back on it. And then you're not going to get that emotional visual dynamic. How do those uh, discussions go when you're picking the set list then? Is that, is that an open forum or is it just someone just, just Pete just go, no, we, don't, we can't play that because I don't no, like the lyrics anymore. I, I, do the set, I do the set list. Yeah, do you? Yeah, I do the set list. Excellent. Yeah. That's kind. That's kind of my. That's kind of my. That's kind of my gig. Uh, it's not a draconian dictatorship or anything. <laughs> I do the set list, and then the set list is put around around the dressing rooms. People can see it. Generally speaking, I take it to the boys, and yeah. for the majority of the times, I look at it and I go, "Yeah, that's fine." Pete wants to play as much as possible, so he's kind of like, "Why have you left that out?" That's what he's saying. Why? Why have you left that out? On the odd occasion, he'll say, "I'm not feeling that. I'm really not feeling it." And if that is the case, then that's gone. You know, yeah. whatever it is, it's gone. 
If you're not feeling it, it's gone. This isn't about like, um, we have to play these set numbers because we may only have, what, three albums? It is three, is it three albums we got? Yeah. <laughs> you may only have three albums, but within those three albums, there, there's plenty of things that we can actually play. Does it all like roll that. into one? Yeah, it does roll into one. Yeah, it does yeah. roll into one. So you said that uh, that might be, Horror Show may be the most difficult one to play. What's your personal favorite to play? When, which just before the lull, when it comes on, you just get all giddy and go, let's fucking have it with this one. Um, that's probably Boys in the Band. Great, great choice. What yeah, it's possibly, boy, it's possibly Boys in the Band because for a song that should be so kind of like straightforward, the title states that this is about the boys in the band and it should be just kind of like have it all the way through. But it has all of these kind of like little subtle nuances and dynamics yeah. that go all the way through the whole of the track. That makes it really, really not only interesting listening, but really interesting to approach or, you know, from a, from, from a performance standpoint. And what I tried to do with the parts that I came up with that was try to make them as indicative as the vocal arrangements as I possibly could do. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I've been, I've been recently, I've been asked to um, um, enter this musical educational program starting in August, where I'm gonna go to a studio and it will just be me teaching people how to play things that I've played. And one of the first things I'm going to do is possibly boys in the band, because it's possibly going to take the longest to teach, because there's so much going on in boys in the band. It's ridiculous, because I'm trying, you know, everything that I'm doing from the utilization of the higher on my right hand is picking out all of the little minor inflections that the vocals are doing, mm. and then kind of like dropping the, the, the kick bass that the whole of that song doesn't do the same thing. It just keeps on changing all the way through because it's mirroring all of the different dynamics that's, that, are, that are going on there. I mean, there's the highs and the lows and there's twos and the throws. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 and so, so for me, it's, it's, it's just, it was just a lot of fun to actually play. It's, 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 you know, it's, a, it's a roller coaster ride of, of a track to perform. Um, the, the next song on the album after that is Radio America, which is, I wanted to ask you about next. It's kind of uh, a bit of a polarizing track, isn't it? I think. I mean, it, it, it's a lovely segue on the album. Every every album needs light and shade, anyway. But um, apparently, the, the one of the reasons it got on the album because um, Carl didn't want it on was from was from some light blackmail, which is what I read anyway. Um, you can maybe you can maybe tell me if this is true or not. But I ain't um, got I ain't got no idea about no light blackmail. All, <laughs> all I all I know is um, one second yuck. All I know is um, it's my favorite track on the album is it radio america is my favorite track on the album is yeah, that yeah. because you prefer that kind of you know that that the slow down in tempo slow down exactly yeah that no it's because it no it's a beautiful song it is no more no less it's yeah. just a beautiful song i you know yeah. i did um i on my radio show today I, I did a segue of like three songs that are kind of they have a very classic um almost R and old school R and B feel. They're all kind of like two to three years old. But yeah. the, the whole feel of it is I, I don't know if you guys ever 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 witnessed this as a child, but I I certainly witnessed this. When your parents threw a party and it wasn't a fishbowl party. There was no there was no taking keys or nothing like that. It wasn't it wasn't <laughs> it was it wasn't that kind of a party, but they'd throw a party and the friends would all be there and yeah. the kids would be sent to bed and they'd sneak downstairs and they'd be sat 
looking through the banisters in the living room and they'd be smoking and drinking nonsense and then someone had just put on a slow groove and everyone had just be there just kind of like swinging and just chilling out and it just looked like an, an amazingly we don't nobody does that anymore Every, we're all in a rush we're all in a rush to do something no one's in the mood to just sit down and chill and take a breath and just enjoy the moment radio for radio america for me is sit down and enjoy the moment albeit yeah. the recording of it wasn't enjoy the moment the recording of it was was something else altogether it was it was that was that was that that, that was a different thing using the modern day colloquialism that that was that was that was next level thing yeah. recording that tell, tell, tell us about that what, what what was the what was the routine recording that just just well we we re, we'd recently um established a relationship with a man called phil harris or Flaris, as we would prefer to call him, as we did call him. And he was a provider, a procurer of, of rare instruments. So he brought a few guitars and some old school guitars. I think at some stage he had, he, I think he had a relationship with like um, Phil Lydon and Thin, Phil, Thin Lizzy and he was performing with them or something like that. But then he just got into instruments. And I know plenty of people who've started their career off performing, but then decided, I just love instruments. My drum tech, he's just, drums left, right and center, that, 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 that's the thing. Um, and we decided that we wanted to do Radio America, but we wanted to perform it on original, traditional instrumentation. So John is on, he's not just on a standard bass, he's on a standard bass from the 1950s. I'm playing an original 1950s Ringo Starr sparkle kit. The guys are playing original Gretches from back in the day. And we set up the studio, I remember me and John were in the studio, and we set up the studio and we jammed around on a few things, making sure that everything was set up and pointing in the right direction. Because it's not just about set up, set, set mics up and play. If the drums are set up in the wrong direction, then the inflection of the drums will bounce off the ball wrong, bounce off the wall, sorry, wrong, and you get a completely different sound. Mm -hmm. So we spent our day doing that. Peter turned up and then, you know, every, everything was cool. Carl, on the other hand, Carl was out partying the night beforehand. Carl was out partying the morning after the night beforehand. <laughs> Carl was still partying into the afternoon from the night beforehand. And he eventually turned up to the studio and Carl was wasted. He just, he literally just came, I think Carl literally put down his last drink and said, <laughs> got in the car and turned up to the studio and Carl went, yeah, 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 I'm And we just went, all right, fine, if that's what it is, that's what it is. So we sat down. John realized that playing the standard bass is going to be really difficult because the strings are so thick and you've got to really give it a good pluck in order to get any kind of tenor out of anything. And I'm loving life because it's really easy. The track is just a beautiful track and I ain't got much to do. I ain't sweating or nothing. I'm fine. I don't even need a drink or nothing. It was a beautiful day. I'm just like, this is, this is great. It's just about catching the emotional dynamic of the track. And then we're playing and Peter had, had enough time to just kind of chill and relax. And he's singing and his vocals were just beautiful. And I'm just like, this is amazing. And I look over at Carl and Carl's kind of got his guitar and his head bopping. And all of a sudden he just kind of stops and falls forward, boom. And you hear a click in the track and that's Carl's head hitting the microphone. No. Oh. And Carl yeah. is out cold. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the track that made it onto the album. That is the track. Carl is out. Yeah. 
And then he had an argument with Mickey Most afterwards about all types of stuff, but he was just wasted. And, you know, at the time, you know, it's, it's one of those retrospective points in time where you yeah. look at that moment and you go, oh God, we could have, you know, we could have done so much better. But the reality is everything that Carl did that day and everything that we did within its entirety made that track sound and become even more special to me at the least yeah, yeah. Than, than, it, than it would have done if we would have turned up at 10 o'clock and tuned the guitars properly and I would have spent hours just kind of like making sure the drums were, well I did that anyway and um, spent hours making sure the drums were fine and then we would have gone one two three four and everyone played it perfectly and then we would have had dinner and then we, I would have had a chat a game of chess and then jumped in our cars and gone home nah that wasn't us we did we we approached it completely differently and the way that we approached it created something that in my mind was beautiful it was definitely of the moment yeah I loved it stories like that I mean we're not surprised to hear of, of Pete and Carl. So what did you and John make of, of them at the time? Like, how did you react? To, was, was that just like a daily occurrence? And, that was just that was how things were. They were, they, they were our boys. That was, that's how it was. Yeah. That's and how did, it was. But you two were then the, the more sensible ones? If, is that, was that what you would say? Yeah. Um, I mean, there was, I mean, we have to put things into kind of perspective. I mean, I think most people would have been more sensible at that particular point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Most people would have been somewhat more, more respectably sensible. Yeah. And, you know, um, just, I, I think the one thing that held us in good stead for the recording of that album is, I mean, obviously we'd been in plenty of other studios beforehand and we recorded demos and the guys before I was, you know, between them, Pete Carl and John, they'd, they'd done recordings beforehand in studios in, you know, in the original incarnation of the Libertines. But at that point in time, between the four of us, we'd never done anything of that nature, of that dynamic beforehand, of that level of professionalism where the end result was going to be something that hopefully we would cherish, that we would absolutely, you know, regardless of anything else. I mean, we recorded within a week, I think we recorded like 22 tracks in a week. Wow. We were just like, we were, we were just on point. We were just like, oh my God, we got it. And whatever Mick Jones said, do it again. We, as I said before, and we would do it again. We would do it again. We would do it again. And then we'd do the next one. And we'd do it again. We would do it again. And then Mick would, Mick would say, do you guys want to take a break? We'd say, yeah, okay, we'll take a break. But if you want us to carry on, we'll carry on. Because this was a whole new scenario for all of us. It was an amazing scenario. We loved every minute of being in the studio. Roll forward a few years and, you know. We'll turn up a little bit late. We'll play a couple of tracks and we'll maybe decide we want to go home because it's not as new anymore. And, but you get, what, you get what you put into it. And that is why the first album sounds like the first album. Yeah. In comparison to the second album, we were chatting about this when we were planning for this podcast. Um, we, we didn't think the second album sounded too similar to the first album. Was that because you were still programmed into that mode as in we'll keep going, we'll keep just creating this atmosphere? Um, or did you just not want to change that much? Because some bands have this onus on them to go, no, we need to go in a new direction or take a small departure. To me, I love the second album nearly as much as the first. I mean, I think the first one just edges it for me, but were you just programmed into that same mode? No, the, se the second album was, an, was a complete and different entity unto itself. Okay. When we went into this studio to record the first album, we were blessed with a plethora of material to go into, go into the studio. I remember, 
but by the by the time the second album rolled around, by that point in time, we were being managed by um, Alan McGee. And I remember having meetings with Alan McGee. Things were starting to kind of like fall off the rails a little bit by that point in time. And Alan's big thing was, instead of just being on the treadmill of performing shows, we need to have something, we need something fresh, something new to approach everything that we're dealing with. The best thing that we could do at that point in time in his mind, and my, and my, and my mind as well, and I think Carl's as well. I'm not too sure about John's because I, I don't think, I can't remember whether we had that conversation, but John was obviously on board because he turned up the first day. We, you know, we were just all of the, all of the impression, we need to get in the studio, we need to get back to work, we need to focus. Instead of like playing a show and going out drinking to Filthies or at that point in time, the Duke of Clarence and just stumbling around, walking around, walking around Waterloo, reenacting whatever type of nonsense. We needed, we needed an, act, an actual professional motivation. Because the profession, the professional motivation was something that we loved. It wasn't as if we were being asked to do mathematics. It was just fun. So we went into the studio and the first thing we saw in the, saw in the studio was two security guards, Michael and Jeff. Who I like, I still like to be saying, I'm still in touch with both of those guys. They deal with um, um, Iron Maiden now. And one of them lives in Spain, the other one lives in Oxford. Twins, huge, smoke cigars, great guys. Just, just, just a lot of fun. But we saw them either side of the studio and we have set up thoughts, set up our game. Then, then again, working with Mick Jones, Mick Jones said, all right boys, what are you gonna play first? And we went, oh crap. We knew we forgot something, material. <laughs> and we had nothing so we started we literally started racking our brains and then there'd be a, a sliver of an idea that came from somewhere and and then we and then we still we just built on it and that was how the whole of that second album was made the second album was a sliver of an idea that began and within a few hours that track was laid down but that's just the talent of the people you were work as as you guys were working with there. Like that is brilliance, isn't it? That you could do the, that. No, I think anybody could do it. I think the most important yeah. thing was the level of trust that we all had in each other, in order to actually do that. If you don't have that level of trust, you can be you can be you, you know what it's like watching the football. You know <laughs> you could you could be the best player in the world, but like Uber wasn't wasn't being delivered the ball yes yes yesterday. There was yeah. no, there was no tyranny was not putting the ball through. Uber's amazing. <laughs> there, was nothing, there was nothing there for him. Dear listener, I must just uh, explain that we are uh, all massive Arsenal fans and we, we're, recording, <laughs> we're, recording the, we're recording the day after we have just been shellacked. Absolutely um, shellacked, yeah. By Manchester good City, turn of phrase. Uh, for, for, for context. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, but glad- there's so many good songs on that album as well. Sorry, Will, to cut you off there, but that's what yeah. I'm just sort of had to say is that there's so, there are some amazing highs. It might not be as many skip. I think up the bracket has no skips. Something that me and Will say a lot about good yeah, albums. No, no skips. skips. A good album no has skips. no skips. But with the Liberty and self-titled, there's some amazing like singles and some brilliant pop songs too, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. So to yeah. have written in that again, way, is amazing. again, it's again, it's a testament to Pete and Carl. It's a testament to them. They, you know, without I think. The further that we got into our careers, I think the more they thought about what actually makes a good pop record or yeah. what makes a good single. Whereas the first two albums, what they thought was, I like this. Oh, that sounds interesting. Why don't we do this? That sounds yeah. a lot more fun. And then we were working with the likes of Mick Jones who went, oh, that does actually sound fun. Why don't we do something with that? And then John would say, well, I've got a great idea for a bass line. And they just went, yeah, play it. 
and John went, yeah, and they were like, I love that. Whereas <laughs> now we kind of like, we think about things a little bit more. It's right. oh, does that actually fit? Is that what we're trying to achieve? What are we trying to achieve now? And I'm, I'm hoping that we, I'm hoping that we, I'm hoping that everybody gets to a point in time because it must, when popular music began, it must have began with somebody who just went, I got a really good idea. And somebody else said, all right then, put it in the can, let's hear it. And then they went, fine. There was less of this umming and ahhing. There was more of this kind of gestation of an idea so that the general public can make up their mind. There wasn't Simon Cowell's out there going, you don't sound like Beyonce, so you're rubbish. If you sound more like Beyonce, you're gonna be amazing. The music needs to sound like this. We're all into trap now, so we need a trap song. No, 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 no. What we need is a good song. And that good song has to come from, it's to come from your heart, has to come from whatever emotional integrity, whatever emotional point of view are actually coming from at that point in time. And that's where we were with the first two albums. Peter Carl found it very easy to just sit down. Carl Peter especially had a guitar in his hand all of the time. He always had a guitar in his hand. You could not get him, get, I remember um, getting into arguments with him because we were trying to do something and he was sat there with a guitar. And all he was doing was trying to make music. But I, in my mind, was like, well, we need to do this right now. Whether I was right, whether I was wrong, more than likely, you know, I could have approached things better with reference to what we were doing, like a sound check. I'd just, I'd just be playing away. And in my mind, I'm like, this is what we need to do. But post the event, what I'm now thinking is, maybe he had the idea for the best song in the world in his head at that moment in time. And what have I done? I've just come and fucked it up. That's what I've done. Yeah. And it's only like hindsight that teaches you all of these things. Hindsight now has taught me that those guys back then, Pete and Carl especially, they were, with reference to how they wrote, they were on such a heightened individual plane Yeah. that it just came so easy to them. Another level. Do you yeah, think they're, they're on another level? Another Do you think they're underrated in the sphere of British songwriting? Absolutely. Yeah. Are you kidding me? But a lot of that is not because a lot of that is not because people are underrating the writing ability. It's because people are overrating everything else that goes on with reference to them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And all of that other stuff. Because we do live now in a world where celebrity is God, because we live in that world right now, all of that stuff has a lot more prevalence to the general. People are, ignoring, general. people are ignoring the music a bit more. Which ign- yeah, people ignore the music a little bit more. Or if they are paying attention to the music, they're paying t- attention to the music because of the celebrity that's behind the music, as opposed to... Completely the wrong motive. Listening to the music for music's sake. Yeah. yeah. You know, that, that's, that's the world that we live in right now. Yeah. The, world where we look, we're the world where we look at Marcus Rashford and we're actually surprised that an individual could stand up for the rights of somebody else because it's a football player. Now, that's, that's, that's just common decency. Yeah. That's common decency. But it, we don't see enough common decency from people. We, what we want to see is a big booty. What we want to see is somebody getting out of a flash car outside of a nightclub. What we want to see is some idiot talking about things that they ain't got no reason to be talking about because that's not what we want to see them talking about. You know, if I, if I, if I want somebody to talk to me about prison reform, I'm not going to talk to a Kardashian. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, how, 
How do you operate in that sphere of celebrity and the here and now and having to be in the public eye? Maybe a lot more with social media. So one of the one things I wanted to ask you is social media, I feel, has changed gigs quite a lot. Uh, and I feel that the atmosphere at gigs varies as to which one I go for. Obviously, that just comes with the territory in which bands you go to see. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel an increase in energy in certain gigs and places you play? Obviously, maybe not compared to the, the old days because, I mean, Unfortunately, I wasn't there to experience it. He was Matt. And yeah, yeah, you were too we, young. We, we've, had, we've had to bring ourselves... No, we, <laughs> we've, we've, had to, we've had to bring ourselves in at a later date. I'm a, yeah. I'm a second generation libertine, I'd have to say, or maybe even third and fourth. But what, what, what's it like for you? You're behind the drum kit and looking at the crowd. You're the only one who can make the, the real comparisons, right? Um, I, I, you know, it's, that, that, that's a tough one that I've never actually really... Re- never really actually thought about particularly that much. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the dynamic is a dynamic and the dynamic from one gig to another is always going to be somewhat different. There yeah. may be gigs that we've played now that are much more akin to gigs that we've played in the past. Mm. You know, like, so, so for instance, when we, um, the first time that we went to um, Japan, we played the festival Summer Sonic and we flew out to Osaka first and it was our, our very first for a very first foray into into the far east and it was amazing but the tour manager that we had at that point in time was a guy called Pete and he was at his last you know he was pulling out his last hair with, with reference to the antics that we got up to on stage and the amount of booze that was being thrown around and drum kits being thrown all over the place and and people being invited up onto the stage and instruments being smashed and people yeah. being pushed around he was at his he was pulling out his last hair and he went to Tokyo and he said right boys this is going to be a lot easier for us. It's going to be so much easier because in Tokyo, the dynamic of the audience is completely different. You turn up on stage, if the audience is quiet, they are respectfully quiet until you begin the performance. After you finish performing a track, they will clap and they will stop clapping until you start playing again. There's a level of respect performing in Tokyo and you have to get used to it because if you're not used to it, you'll think it's a bit weird and it may throw you off your game regarding how you play. We went, oh, okay, well, this is gonna be interesting. We walked out on stage and sure enough, in this big hall, and sure enough, it was quiet. And we, we were just like, wow, that's a bit freaking weird. Was it so quiet? And I can't remember what we started playing first. I think it was whilst we played Horror Show was the ultimate track, which was killing me, obviously. But as soon as we started playing, it went absolutely mental. Now, bearing in mind, this is prior to social media. This is way, this is 2002, 2003. There's no social media at this point in time. Other than, I might add, Peter on the internet doing whatever thing he was doing, messaging people. And, you know, he, you know, he was pretty much at the forefront of any bands having any form of um, technological communication well, with fans. Didn't, yeah, didn't you have loads of fans come around to your, Pete and Carl's flat, right? They yeah, 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 yeah. In their flat. And would, yeah. would, you, would you be part of that too? Or? I, I, was, I was kind of part of it, but I, I, was, I, wasn't, yeah. I wasn't part of it. I turned up when I turned up. I was, yeah. uh, you know, and generally speaking, I'd always turn up late, you know, because I, I knew at that point in time, this was, this was about the adoration of Pete and Carl. Yeah. And so I, you know, I wasn't going to turn up and just stand around and try and be cool amongst people. That just, that just wasn't my thing. But I did like to turn up late, especially when the police arrived and see people shit themselves. Because I already didn't give a fuck. I'm just like, <laughs> what are you going to do? I ain't done nothing wrong. Well, you're going to arrest me. What are you going to arrest me for? You, you. So I, 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 what can I say? In the words of the specials, 
I knew my rights, so I was fine. I'm just like, whatever. But it was just hilarious watching people shit themselves. And I used to kind of get, I used to kind of get up and doing that. I used to kind of get up and do it. But, um, all, the, all the enemy journalists were all like Yeah, they were all yeah. shitting themselves. They were all, the police would turn up, they were all shitting themselves. I remember once the neighbor upstairs, she turned up with an ax because it was so loud. Yeah, I heard but, that. Yeah, story. she turned up with an axe. Wow. And again, mad. that was hilarious. I'm like, what are you going to do? You yeah. ain't killing nobody. You will go to jail, fool. So it's fine. I'm not even worried. It's funny. It was hilarious. It was just, <laughs> it was That's funny. so interesting what you say about the dynamic of the gig, just going absolutely berserk and just sort of having that like respect before as if it's like maybe yeah. a theatre show. I remember I, um, I didn't get a ticket when you played the Barrowland in uh, 2014. Um, I tried and tried and tried. So um, I'll, I'll name check him. Billy. Billy Lum from the Subways. Um, ah, Billy's my... Yeah, I love Billy. Great yeah, guy. Love great. Billy. It, it might have even been you he messaged. Um, but yeah, absolutely great guy. One of the, it probably was. Probably the sort of the earth. And I, I went... Just Billy kidding. <laughs> Wait until you hear the story. <laughs> I, said, I, said, I, said, is there, I said, is there anything that you can, you can do? I'm really stuck. You know, I've, I've been such a massive fan and had years without you guys being around. And I texted him and he went... Yeah, mate, I've sorted it. No problem. I've um, put you plus one on the guest list. Now, this is the day Holland played Mexico in the 2014 World Cup. So yeah. I've, I've been on it in Glasgow City Centre with my mate uh, Stuart ever since the afternoon. Uh, watched that really heartbreaking game for the Mexicans. Gone down to the Barrowlands, rocked up, proud as punch, going, oh, I'm on the guest list for the Libertines tonight. How, how cool is that? Uh, and I've gone along. I've said my name. Go, well, you go on it, mate. But, you know, the classic, just they've heard this all before. You're not on it. You're not on it. Just basically do one. And I went, no, 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 I am. Maybe it's under Billy Dunn. No, absolutely nothing. So the the bloke who's obviously really pissed off at me now phones up. Maybe the dressing room or it could have been manager. It could have been you, Gary. This is where we, we reunite somehow. And he went, this is a little kid. I mean, like this small kid in front of me. He says he's on the guest list. He's obviously blagging it. It might have been you that have gone or your manager's going, I'll just fucking let him in anyway. It was like 20 minutes of stage time. I got in and it was about... They 10, felt sorry for him. 10, yeah, they felt, probably felt sorry for me came in 10 minutes before and got in just before the first song came on lights dropped and you know i've hardly ever been at a gig like it honestly just the pit at the front i had to just remove myself from that chaos at the front because not only was it anticipation you guys coming on stage i think it was anticipation of years and years of you bringing those that feeling back to people yeah. who maybe had experienced it but there's also a massive part of the crowd who hadn't seen Bert go horror show boys in the band live and fucking you know just as a credit just what what a fucking gig and the 13 14 after that I've been to. Absolutely unbelievable as well. So just, yeah. Cheers. Um, cheers, well, cheers, no, cheers it was you that gave me the thumbs up. That yeah. I, well, was, for the sake of the me. story, it was, it was, <laughs> we say it was Gary. It definitely was. <laughs> Gary, before we wrap, can we, I just want to ask you about anything going on at the moment then. Are you recording? Is there things, anything in the pipeline? Um, well, I know Carl is, um, Carl went down to Margate last week. He's, he's working on stuff. I've been working on stuff here. Pete's in France. I think he's been working on things. John is in Denmark. You see, this is this again goes to you know the, the overall change in dynamic of the band. Whereas yeah. beforehand, you know, Pete and Carl they they'd be coach uh, they'd be um, couch surfing around. John lived around the corner from me. You know, we were all a stone's throw away from each other. Whereas now, you know, the dynamic has completely changed. Whereby you know Carl only lives ten minutes away from me when he is in London, but yeah. because he now has a family, I have a family. There's a there's a president that actually takes takes place first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to take care of all of that stuff first. Yeah. Pete is kind of like Pete is still Pete. You know, I think that's a dynamic that has never changed. But <laughs> he's but he now has the opportunity and the ability to see more of the world. So he's like, yeah. well, why the hell am I staying here? I can go here. I can go there. 
I can go anywhere I want to go. I can go here and go, go, I can go anywhere. I, you know, I, I can go and do that. John lives in Denmark. And so even with the advent of technology, it's still not the same as actually being face-to-face -face with the people that you actually really want to be with. Mm. It's still not the same. So we kind of like, we, instead of, instead of utilizing technology to do anything, we raise the moments when we actually do get together. And when we do get together, we make the most of it at that particular moment in time. Um, hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be some kind of succinct difference in how we, again, approach everything that we do. Because in my mind, what got people interested in what we did was the vive la difference, was the fact that we approached things from a slightly different point of view. Yeah. And I just think it makes more sense. I mean, I'm not, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about the reinventing of the wheel. We're not going to come out and make a dubstep album. But I'm, I'm still thinking that, you know, that we can approach things from a slightly different point of view so that the end of the, tr at the, end of the road is... The end of the journey, sorry, is exactly the same, but the journey that we actually took to get there is different. So then when the listener hears what they're hearing, they'll hear what is a somewhat traditional Libertines track, Yeah. but there'll be nuggets and gems in there that they might not have expected. The right. journey of the way we, where we would normally take a path that takes us this way, Yeah. we instead go this way. Okay. Okay. So, so all, so all of, so, so instead of, so, so instead of being listening, just going, yeah, I really like this and bobbing along. We want, we, I personally want people to go, oh, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's interesting. What is that? Because that interest will keep people listening again and again and again and again. Oh. And we're like, we're what, 20 years in now? Yeah, exactly. Which is really oh. weird to think. It's our longest job I've ever had in my entire life. And um, we're like 20 years in. I mean, who's to say what is going to hold people's interest in the future? Who's to say? Who's to say? Exactly. So it makes sense for me, as far as I'm concerned, for us to go all out. Oh, I can't wait. Walls blazing. Can't we, wait. We, we used to say, back, four guys, backs against the wall, smoking furiously. It was us against the world. Yeah. And that's the approach that I want us to take again.